0: hello everyone my name is suki thompson welcome to reset the podcast a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life i do hope that your journey to feel more connected more inspired just a bit more energized starts here take a moment now with me to reset. This week, I'm talking about two things I'm really passionate about, sustainability and fish with Rich Lawrence. Rich is the category brand and innovation director at New England Seafood. He's always been fascinated by marketing and has a great pedigree from companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, Weetabix, and PepsiCo, where he learned how to create a strong brand with a clear and crunchy positioning. In recent years, he's taken on the challenge of transforming New England seafood. Rich talks me through the company's journey over the last 30 years and discusses with me how they continue to battle the preconceptions of the fishing industry. We discuss the importance of maintaining the clarity of strategy and plan, as well as how Rich measures success to stay focused on the mission. New England seafood shareholders are 23,000 Tinglet, Hader and Shimshan people, the bloodline descendants of the first settlers to the Americas. As with so many of my guests who work for organizations driven by a real clear sense of purpose, we talk about the need for teams and people to feel truly aligned to the values of the company and believe in what they're all working towards, which in Rich's case is making New England seafood for people and for the planet. Rich shares with me his personal journey to becoming the maverick marketeer he is today capable of driving change and overcoming challenge. The personal development he undertook early in his career, it's a great story, and the work he's done to build productive and professional habits into his day-to-day life. For Rich, living a work life based on passion, purpose and people has allowed him to focus his energy and creativity to lead and inspire and make a real difference. Rich, how are you today? It's so lovely to see you on a beautiful sunny day.
1: Oh, thanks, Zuki. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, yeah, really excited actually to catch up and talk. It's uh, it's been a long time since uh, kind of been back on Zoom and doing all that, so uh, it's uh, yeah, it, it's good to be here.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's been a long time, and I think when we met recently, and we were talking about the work that you're now doing, and you're working with. Um, with fish and fishermen and um, you know I was thinking t- while I was reflecting today that um, it's a beautiful sunny day so you know what a lovely day for all for all of those fishermen out there today in the sunshine but actually it's a really hard life isn't it and you know you're all about sustainable fishing and fishery um, tell us a little bit about what it's like for before we go into you know what you are done as a business but just tell us what it's like
1: um, for the fishermen as, as a life. I'll be honest with you, Suki, I'm not a massive expert on the fishing life from a, a deep sea element. It's, I think it would vary. And I think people would be, I think people would be surprised about um, the difference between their preconceptions around, I suppose, the industry and what it's actually like when you're into it. Um, it was, um, it's quite interesting. We, we source fish from all over the world. And... Um, again, I suspect that most people in the UK think uh, their fish arrives in this cute little Cornish day boat, which goes out uh, five days a week and gets shipped overnight to the supermarket where it's put on ice and everything else like that. But the reality is, um, you know, we in the UK import most of our fish from around the world. So the fishing industry is very different and it's very international. So um, again, it, it varies as well. So Again, within the parts of the fishing industry that we're we're kind of really involved with, a uh, lot of kind of wild salmon, which is in the North Pacific around Alaska um, and uh, Canada, and ultimately that's a seasonal harvest. So that would work again from around this time of year, so around kind of June, July, through through the course of the summer, and it's a really intensive period of fishing and it's in everything, and that's in small boats and kind of um, which goes out. Whereas other parts of the fishing industry we were involved with, um, so um, for example, tuna, uh, we get a lot of um, kind of long line Korean tuna, which would come from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So a long line um, Korean fishing boat would go out for months, if not years at a time. So there's a real difference in this experience between um, these kind of fishermen. And uh, obviously there's other parts, like a, a fresh Maldivian or whatever it is. It's just such a big, very global industry. Um, It's very difficult to kind of um, say one experience is like the other. But, yeah, it's incredible, really.
0: Gosh, that's amazing, isn't it? And you very kindly sent me some of your fish. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing to have fish that tastes like you can at the best restaurants, but you can eat in your house um so you know I am I am and we love 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 fish in our in our family but it is extraordinary so tell us a little bit about the kind of mission for New England seafood because it is a kind of mission it's it's much bigger than just getting a few fish and uh and talking to some fishermen isn't it absolutely I think
1: again if you'll indulge me I, I think that the best way is to almost start at the beginning actually and talk about the journey of kind of how we got to where we are today yeah. uh, kind of the key influences on, on that journey really so again most people wouldn't wouldn't know New England seafood at all um, we're a or previously a private label fish business we supply most UK retailers um, and ultimately it's been 30 years since we were founded so founded by a classic entrepreneur Fred who um kind of w- went over to Canada Then came back, started importing lobsters, selling them to posh restaurants, uh, Hilton, um, Savoy, those sorts of things. He soon realized that actually importing and selling lobsters was pretty easy and that it was likely he was going to cut out of the market. So doing what classic entrepreneurs did, he um, went off to go and find something else to sell, end up in uh, Sri Lanka in the Maldives and started importing tuna on the 747s um, underneath the honeymooners, bringing them in and selling them to the restaurants uh one day uh um,
0: hilarious thought isn't it honeymooners fish. yeah
1: exactly fish underneath it one day um a uk retailer was out having dinner um thought the fish was fantastic found out from the restaurant owner where they got it so they gave fred a call and before you know it kind of the business was born now again fred being an entrepreneur kind of often went with his gut and kind of gut feel of entrepreneurs kind of really important it's something one of the values we've still kind of really got this entrepreneurship within us um And what Fred did was in 2004, he recruited um, our first sustainability director. And obviously we've kind of taken off from there. So we have quite a different view of fish sustainability to many other businesses. So um, we believe in making a difference. And ultimately that means partnering with fisheries around the world in order to work with them, to improve them and we believe the gold standard of uh, fish sustainability for wild fish, at least, is the MSC. So, what we want to do is work with our suppliers for to help help them improve their ability and ways of working, uh, and ultimately go through a, a third-party accreditation such as the MSC to get um, classified as a, you know sustainable source of source of fish. So, one of the things we do is put them through a, a fishery improvement plan uh, and kind of give them a support them through the action planning in order to deliver that standard. So, again, for the last 20-odd years, um, you know, fish sustainability has been very important to um, and it's kind of one of our core values. And I suppose it's really, it's really accelerating in the last few years as well. So I suppose the other really kind of interesting thing, or we find it interesting at least, is, um, again, we were acquired by an organisation about two years ago, now called Sea Alaska. And um, they have a much more global outlook. The Sea Alaska, are again, are a really an interesting organization. Um, it's a Alaska Native Corporation, again, which many people in the UK wouldn't have heard of at all. Um, so they were 13 Alaska Native corporations that were founded in 1971 by the US federal government when they settled with the indigenous people of Alaska. They created these organizations, which are for profit social enterprises, which ultimately are meant to provide and support um, um, the indigenous people of Alaska. So we have 23,000 Alaska native shareholders from um, three tribes, Clinkit, Haida and Simsham.
0: Wow. So what you've got shareholders in your business that are in Alaska and there's 20,000 of them.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, How does that work? Again, they're all uh, so our shareholders are um, you know, from the three tribes who live in the area of Sea Alaska, which is founded. Uh, the shares in our kind of parent company, Sea Alaska, they can't be bought or sold. They can only be inherited, gifted, or bequeathed. And it ultimately is part of the, you know, again, where in the kind of the mainland USA, you have the, the set kind of uh, native settlements. And actually, it's a different approach in Alaska. So they have these businesses which are kind of owned by the indigenous people rather than as a kind of a, a chunk of land. So, the, so yeah, so it's a really nice kind of link to our business where we, we source a lot of fish from Alaska, uh, yeah. the one, and um, you know, it, it's a again, it's a it's a really great um, it's a really great link.
0: I suppose- and, just, and just on that, Rich, because it's. know so often we hear of programs where we think that we're really helping indigenous people from different countries you know particularly I'm much more familiar with Africa for example and actually when you drill down into it we haven't been helpful we haven't really been supportive we've been kind-hearted but we haven't really helped their country and those people this sounds like it's actually really helping and supporting they've got uh, you know they can they can do what they do brilliantly as business people, but you can kind of help them take those fish and, and get them globally. Is, is that does that is that the reality?
1: Mm. I'm just trying to or, organize that the answer. Can't, not quite really. I suppose there, there's hundred um, percent of our distributable profit, Goes to these communities. So since I think it's 2014, over 340 million US dollars have been distributed to our shareholders and through broader campaigns and education, health, outreach, cultural development. So absolutely everything we do is um benefits these, these our, our shareholders, who, yeah, again, being being honest, they're, you know, they're not amongst the wealthiest people in society. They get a dividend from us of Generally around six thousand US dollars per year. That's used to buy fu- fuel, food, support through the winter. And you know, many of our many of our shareholders are um, kind of hunters, fishers. Uh, you know, right. pe- people there. So you know, it's not necessarily you know there is a, a foundation or an institute which is around cultural and social outreach. But but really, we are a for profit enterprise, and ultimately, the the way we uh, support and help our shareholders. is, so is in two worlds. First of all, it's through the distribution of cash that we generate. But also, and I think this is really important is, you know, through, um, through building a business, which they can be proud of. So again, you know, delving deep into, uh, deep into organization. And I'm still finding out more about it, you know, day by day. It's fascinating to us here in the UK as well and in the, in the business, but the business hasn't always been, uh, successful. So, Again, as part of the Settlement Act, the you know the, tri- the Alaska Native uh, tribes were given different um, elements. So some tribes got gold, some tribes got oil, and ours got uh, forestry. And so ultimately, um, as a business for a long time, we were um, we were logging, um, and ultimately that didn't really um, didn't really fit with the values of our shareholders. So. Um, over the last 10 years, there's been a real transformation in how we operate. The business has been divested of some of the businesses it owns, but ultimately it's been completely refocused in, in um, two areas. One is ocean health, so from a scientific perspective, and the other is sustainable seafood. I think our, our mission, so the, the leadership of the business, really has got, um, got a core objective, really, is to build a business in which our shareholders can be proud of whilst delivering profit and ultimately, our, our key watchword is for people and for the planet. And, that, and that's what we try to do. So, you know, it, it's very much a case of um, you know, we, we take from our shareholders. And ultimately, the the mission that we're on is to build a business which makes them proud of, of what we're doing on their behalf and also generating uh, cash to support these kind of wonderful outreach programs that we do. Mm. So it's it, it's really interesting as well where... Actually, you know, I joined New England Seafood rather than Sea Alaska, and ultimately, you know, we're we're a business which is in the business of selling fish and uh, selling more fish to kind of more consumers, and it's something we're incredibly passionate about. But at the same time, having this kind of ownership purpose, it is quite motivating, and it it certainly helps with the it certainly helps with the difficult decisions. If you know what I mean, because really we're We're really committed to our long term goals and what we're what we're trying to do. And it it makes some of the tougher moments. And we've had a few tough moments recently. um, It makes them slightly easier because it gives us real confidence in what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah. And, And do you find so, you know, let's let's hear a bit about you, because I think it's interesting, isn't it, that some people find their way through to businesses that they they have a, has a very strong sense of purpose and they feel very passionate about um and other people don't feel that need what, what were you like where did you grow up rich
1: oh um kind of very corporately really so i started at unilever um mm-hmm. brief time at l'oreal but i spent most of my career at pepsi right. so uh, selling walker's crisps naked juice uh, both in the uk and and abroad um spell at Wheatbix and then then came into new england seafood really and yeah, I think you're right. You know, I've always been um, fascinated by marketing and working out um, how to sell more, how to sell stuff, really. I'm a, you know, big believer in uh, the power of trade and entrepreneurialship. So having, I spent five years working in Asia, went to many markets, which are at a far greater stage of development than than the UK and Europe. And, mm. you know, I saw the power both good and bad of uh, of business and how actually um actually you know I really believe that building a business is purpose in itself and actually supporting people through you know jobs and an income is is something to be proud of you know on its own um but then i came into came into New England seafood really, and it 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 is a step up really in terms of of the mission and, and what you're trying to do and Kind of the the motivation is really really quite different. I think there's a again what what's great again about where we are at the moment, and i've you know I'm definitely converted and kind of, mm-hmm. of all the cool data. I, I, I love your
0: enthusiasm. It's fantastic. Is the
1: uh, <laughs> again is the is the link between the kind of the global purpose of what we're trying to do in Seal Alaska in terms of building a, a business based in people. And the planet and actually what we do in New England seafood, and harnessing the, the years of fish sustainability with, with the now broader mission. And it's only really becoming kind of more prevalent now that the relationship between kind of food and climate change is getting much, much bigger and much more, much more defined. So again, I'm I'm sure your your conversations have revealed in the past that but one third of global greenhouse gas emissions comes from what we eat. And um, with the uh, population of the planet forecast to grow from around six and a half, seven billion now to 10 billion by by 2050, the amount of food that people are going to require on this planet is going to increase by about 50%. So ultimately, uh, with all the reductions in um, greenhouse gas emissions driven by move to clean energy and everything else like that, unless we as a food industry uh, change what we do and really make it easier for consumers we're going to be the biggest emitters of greenhouse gas. Uh, and that's something which is quite sobering. I suppose the other bit as well, which is, again, why why see Alaska bring this here, is they've got a really, really clear vision on the importance of the oceans. So, again, I, I don't know if you know this, Suki, but um, 50% of the oxygen you breathe, or we breathe, is created by marine photosynthesis. Um, so, it, it, you know, ocean health is really really tied up to um individual health with two-thirds of the world's um surface covered by water and this is really our mission here is we we believe that um people need to eat more fish to ultimately reduce the impact of um agriculture and their their food on climate change
0: that's that's interesting because i was going to ask you about that because i think you know we've for a number of years but i think particularly in the last few years we've got uh, we're, we're understanding a lot more around eat a bit less meat, you know, eat some more vegetables. The vegetarian, uh, possibly not the vegan, but certainly the vegetarian, um, you know, even if it's just a few days a week, is making a big difference to the planet. And we, when we get that, not everyone follows it, but I think we understand that. So I was going to ask you, should we in the same way actually eat less fish? Should we not be trying to eat as much fish because presumably that has, does have an impact on the sea. But, but actually I think you're saying something slightly different, aren't you?
1: I'm saying something very different, Suki. It would be, uh, eat more fish, save the planet, really. Uh, It's kind of, kind of our mission. So I think it's, again, this is, as a marketeer, this is really fascinating, I think, to find the the difference in the prevailing wisdom around kind of fish sustainability and the state of the oceans. And actually, you know, I think, you know, many people you speak to would have the view that, you know, fisheries are massively under threat and uh, a challenge. So, again, uh, there's been this, um, I think this real journey over the last kind of 35 years. So, you know, the the starting point was the United uh, Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea in in 1985, uh, reform of the... um, common fisheries project, um, sorry, common um, fisheries in the EU in 1992. Um, and actually, um, it's made a real difference. Now, there's lots of, lots of work still to do, but I think the the state of the global kind of fishery and fishery business versus what people would think is quite different. So, um, you know, to, to throw some facts and figures at you, for example, um, the UN FAO, Uh, published kind of a landmark uh, State of Global Fisheries and Aquaculture Report in 2020. According to them, 78.7% of um, current landed fish is biologically sustainable, which is a number which is far higher than I think the prevailing wisdom suggests. Now, obviously, you know, our mission and what we want to do is get that to 100%. But at the same sort of time, uh, the impact of... Um, fishery management by predominantly the EU, when the UK was part of it as well, the US, and countries such as Australia and New Zealand, have been one of the the massive ecological and environmental success stories of the last thirty years. So there's been a couple of kind of really important studies. So in 2009, a guy, Vorm, uh, produced a report which analysed the state of managed fisheries and found that actually um, fisheries were largely stabilized when being actively management managed and then again in 2020 um a new report found that basically when ma- or actively managed fisheries so using science to kind of build your um maximum sustainable yield um are kind of sustainable or improving so out of the two sorry this is all quite confusing. can i um
0: no, no no but i think it's really interesting rich so let me try and understand where I think it because you because you're so in it and it and it's such a it's quite hard i think to get our heads around it because for yes. me, sustainable fishing felt a bit feels a bit like you know um uh farming that is so you've got your cows out in the fields rather than they're being in a, in a in a kind of pen and we get that but we also then understand That actually, you can't get as many. If everything's free range, you simply can't get as much um, available into into the market. And so one of the big arguments they've had is we can't have everything free range because you'll never be able to feed everyone the food you need. But what it sounds like is actually sustainable fishing is different. You can feed everyone. We just need to use technology and a different approach to be able to create Um, not only just sustainable fishing, but actually fishing that's good for the ocean and therefore good for us.
1: Yeah, I think that again, going back to all I just said, the the easiest way of saying that is, fishery management works. And so using a scientific basis to measure and map the amount of biomass or fish that you're taking out and ensure that's at a level which can replicate naturally is possible and it and actually what we should be doing as consumers and as businesses is supporting fisheries which are actively managed and professionally managed on a scientific basis to economically reward them and encourage more of them to happen now you know that
0: there will be less fish if everyone went to actively managed fisheries um there would be less fish wouldn't there
1: well not not necessarily so again there are Again, various different scientific papers, which, um, which would suggest that if you actively managed um, fisheries, you could get slightly more. But the reality is um, wild catch fishing and fisheries have remained stable for the last few years. And, and ultimately, they're going to remain pretty stable into the future, assuming that we continue to actively management. I suppose the other point to just mention is that actually what, what is growing quite rapidly is the... Um, is the proportion of fish which is uh, delivered by, through aquaculture? So through um, farming salmon, farming sea bass, and in Asia, for example, catfish, tilapia. Um, you know the the fish farming industry is kind of really taking off, and ultimately, fish farming again, it, again because the fish um, fish grow in the water; they're very efficient at converting feed into biomass. So again, it's a really efficient form of farming protein. And obviously the other thing to kind of mention about from a sustainability perspective is um, deforestation and um, biodiversity loss. So again, out of the world at the moment, out of all of the land, which uh, is habitable, 51% of it is covered uh, and used for ag- uh, agriculture.
0: Mm.
1: Again, if we want to start uh, reducing our carbon and greenhouse gas emission on the planet, we need to use less land for agriculture than we currently do at the moment. It needs to be rewilded and returned to um, forests and trees. So as a consequence, um, again, farming fish is, again, we would say is a is a really good way of getting high quality, high efficient protein into, into the food chain.
0: Yeah. So, you know, from a marketing perspective, you're a marketeer. Um, and it's, you know, I guess to people who are buying fish, it's a relatively straightforward story, isn't it? Um, you know, uh, maybe spend a little bit more money, but it's going to be sustainable. I think, you know, we've we've got a lot of conversation at the moment. We know we're in an economic really challenging time. Um, globally, everyone's been impacted by the pandemic. Everyone's being really impacted now by a kind of global downturn. Fish is expensive. How do you, as a marketeer, Actually, communicate now? How do you persuade people to buy fish when they're really, you know, a lot of people are, are kind of struggling for money anyway?
1: Of course. And well, it's a really interesting challenge as well, isn't it? Where on one hand, we have this kind of real clear mission to drive dry fish because we believe it is the right thing to do for the people and the planet. But on the other, you've got, I think, all these um, long standing traditional barriers to driving fish consumption. And many of them aren't, aren't sustainability or, uh, purpose driven so ultimately within the uk consumers have a much narrower fish repertoire than in other countries so you go to spain or portugal kind of fish is everywhere right? i have two portuguese team members and they can't understand how how we eat so little fish in the uk um so actually you, you've got to sell the the benefits of the category as a whole with this inspiration that fish is actually really delicious really tasty and then give consumers um, really simple ways of navigating from this kind of raw product into delicious meals. So actually there's a, almost a, um, there's several different challenges uh, to your point there. So one is we've got to drive fish consumption in its own right, notwithstanding the sustainability benefit of it too, As has got to make it easy for consumers. And ultimately by kind of creating brands and supporting our retailer brands, um, ensure that consumers believe that um, fish is worth paying for. And obviously, you know, uh, you know, I love fish. I think it's brilliant. I eat all sorts and varieties and flavors, and I think it's great in every single way, but you know, most people aren't fish nutters like us. And uh, we've got to kind of really, uh, really tell that story really.
0: Yeah, and look, you don't have massive budgets. So how do you balance that kind of classic, build the brand, build the category versus sell the product? Um, which channels do you use? How, how do you think about the kind of plan, the strategy and the implementation? You know, you've come from those very classic big brands, big budget, PepsiCo, Weetabix. What do you do now?
1: It's, oh, it's a great question. Um, basically, I uh, devoured you know, fish-themed Eating the Big Fish by Adam Morgan. Um,
0: ah, I see. Perfect. Yeah. challenge of
1: thinking. And ultimately, when we started building building brands and again we're still primarily a private label business as well so you know we we, we are real partners to our retailers um, and we do the best job we can for them too but when we when we started building our brands because we believed telling the story was so important ultimately it, it's about going back to the real core principles of marketing so ultimately understand your target audience and your consumers build a really crunchy and Kind of clear positioning with elements of tension and then invest in the best design work you can really. So if you don't have a massive budget, you've got to make sure that your pack really sings at a point of purchase. And ultimately, as well, where again, we don't have big budgets, we can't do luxurious marketing. So ultimately, you have, you know, the challenger acknowledgement is we have to sweat every single pound of what, what we do. And so we place a and, but it, it was the same in many businesses. I think this is a, I think this is a philosophy which it doesn't matter how big or small your brand or your business is. It, it goes all the way through really. But we place a massive premium on creativity and delivering the the best that we possibly can. And we we might be a small business and we might um, not have the budgets of other classic blue chip businesses as well. But we we set the same standards. And I, I suppose that. The deal we make with the people that we work with is um, we ask for and we are prepared to buy the very best of their work and ultimately we can't um you know we, we can't make them famous through uh, massive tv campaigns and spending millions of pounds but but we can you know s- set ourselves the highest standards and not compromise and be a bit braver than our businesses would be as well. And that's what we're trying to do. I suppose so the other- What's
0: b- worked particularly well? Is there, is there anything that you can go, look, actually this this worked very well for us?
1: This worked for well. us. Well, again, I, I'd go but like the very basics, really. I, I think, again, I, I know, again, I'm biased, but our design work is superb. So, um, and I, again, it wasn't always easy getting there, but at the same yeah. point, you know, I think it's deli- delivered excellence and it, you know, it really stands out. We're, we're getting to do kind of more and more interesting marketing work as well. So the first few years, we we literally had no money. My budget was yeah thirty seven thousand pounds of available spend, <laughs> um, and so we we bought a food truck because you can capitalise it rather than use opex, and um, recruited Josh, who's a former head chef, now uh, now marketeer. Um, ah.
0: Um.
1: Again, we went around food festivals, festivals, uh, kind of Glastonbury, um, kind of uh, all sorts of other things, um, selling our product because we couldn't afford to give it away. We created a kind of sold sampling, self-liquidating model um, just to get our our product out there and be able to kind of exploit it through social media. And then as our business and brands are getting bigger, so this year around kind of 30 million kind of sales, um, we're beginning to do kind of more through more Kind of traditional marketing but at the same sort of time you know we realize that we don't have the big budgets and ultimately everything we do has to punch far beyond its weight and again yeah, the, yeah. The,
0: and I think the, you know the
1: that, is you
0: fish um taste is really important isn't it getting it out there in that sort of what you know classically experiential kind of environment you know my stepfather was uh, was an MP for Cornwall and very much involved with the fishermen and the farmers, and then um, headed up the fishermen's Mission. And every year there's a lovely, at the end of the summer, there's a lovely event down in Penzance where you can go along exactly to your point, look at different fish, taste different fish, the fishermen are around. It's an amazing, my, my kids used to absolutely love it and their eyes would be so wide open at the variety and just, just actually, you know, the size of fish, let alone the taste and you know everything that goes with it, and I think so much of it is um, it's different, and we don't always understand fish. I think for, for a lot of people, it's a little bit scary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you made a point earlier around how fish is like more expensive than other other kind of proteins. And what we find when we speak to consumers is there's this kind of there's they generally want to eat more fish because they perceive it as being healthy, and they they want. <laughs> have um healthy elements within their diet let's go back to your your point earlier around um how fish is more expensive than other kind of other proteins i think i think you're right as well uh, you know from a consumer point of view many consumers want to eat more fish they see it as healthy and putting um, healthy products in their family's diet is important to them but at the same time there is this fear of kind of wasting uh an expensive product by over overcooking it or even worse undercooking it and everything else like like that. So, yeah, I think you're right. Kind of getting over these barriers is is really important and, you know, it isn't, it's not easy and ultimately it's something which we have to do really. Um, but, you know, particularly now as well, where, you know, the cost of living crisis is on people's minds because it's more important than ever, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when we were talking earlier on recently, um, you're what I would call a maverick marketeer. Um, And, you know, I think you it feels like you've always sort of challenged the marketing environment that you were in. Um, Tell me a little bit about the the moment when you'd been a marketeer for not very long and you probably thought (laughs) you did an amazing job and perhaps it wasn't quite as amazing as you thought. I I I think it's a great insight into you and actually where you are now listening to you, you know, very passionate about everything that you're doing.
1: Yeah, well, again, you you, know, you talk about reset moments quite quite frequently, Suki, and um, I, I think the uh, the first reset of many moments in my career wasn't necessarily one of my choices. Uh, and
0: uh, They never are, are they? <laughs> no, they
1: never are. And um, I was working at PepsiCo on walkers, and uh, my boss at the time, Simon who, uh who is still a very good friend, actually, so uh, we came out of this unscathed. Uh, took me into a room and effectively told me that i scared him and that um, you know whilst uh, the stuff that i um enjoyed and wanted to do i did quite well uh, the stuff that i didn't want to do or thought was unimportant or thought was a bit boring uh, He had no idea if it was going to get done or not and that i was going um a further kind of coach once told me about you know the ping of where ideas go off and it kind of goes everywhere and ultimately simon gave me the choice so he said um I can either um, kind of knuckle down, apply some discipline into my professional life and start looking like I really cared about what I was doing or he'd move me uh, to shopper marketing. Uh, <laughs> that uh, Actually knuckling down, um, being professional and uh, putting discipline into my uh, corporate life was the right thing to do. So I think we had this conversation on a, a Friday and Simon gave me the uh, the weekend to think about uh, what I wanted to do. At that time, PepsiCo was quite um, reasonably dressed down. So the informal, um, informal dress code was wear what you like. But actually, most people were chinos and kind of, you know, US corporate um, kind of button-down shirts, that sort of thing. So really, I, I kind of thought that actually, that, you know, I'd only just joined PepsiCo. I didn't want to move on. This was, I didn't really... Think I had a choice, but I wanted to make a success of what I was doing. I, had you know, deep down, I had quite a lot of pride in in what I was doing, and so I went out. I bought a new wardrobe of uh, smart clothes, and I was there before Simon on Monday morning, ready to go. And I worked really hard for, gonna just really had to apply myself. For again, Simon said six months, but in the end, it was kind of about three to four, kind of ingraining these kind of real habits. And I worked very hard at organizing myself and how I operated, but also projecting a more kind of stable um, kind of corporate persona. And really, it was a turning point in in my career. Up until then, you know, there'd always been a bit of potential and doing, you know, potential to do stuff and a bit of creativity and energy and passion, but it was quite unfocused. And, you know, the first stage of my kind of reset moment was learning to effectively learning to manage myself um, in a way which delivered the certainty of what I was going to do.
0: And I, and I love, I love that story. And I love the fact that you changed your clothes to kind of demonstrate that you were really serious. Do you it's all about wonder, branding. Suki. Yeah, yeah, it's all about branding, isn't it? It's all about branding. But I wonder whether, you know, because I think people always go either way on those sort of things, don't they? They either go, you know, take me as you are, as I am, or I can't really change or, you know, whatever. And I, I know you said, look, it was important to you. I had a sense of pride, um, do you remember how you felt at that time and how you went, okay, I am going to change. I am going to be able to do both of these things. How do I feel? Um, yeah, it was, you know, you you have a kind of
1: an, an initial, mo- an emotional reaction of, you know, what's going on and, you know, do I, do I really want to um, confront this? But, I I think I felt pretty resolute, to be honest. I generally kind of thought if I want to make a success of my career, this is quite a defining, defining moment. And I think I was 25, 26 at the time. And I I kind of thought I I was too young to give up on what I, what I thought I was going to do really. So once, once you get through that initial, initial moment, it was very much right. Then this is what I'm going to have to do. And I I was really committed to it. Yeah. And that's, that's, that was my, um, yeah, my over um, overriding memory of the time was being really focused on what, uh, against it and th- this goal. And again, it's one of those where, I don't know if you find in moments of stress or extreme pressure when you've got a, a single clear goal and a, a kind of a plan behind it, it, it actually makes things pretty easy because everything else just falls away. You don't really have a choice.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And then I guess you've had another, you know, personal reset, in the last couple of years, you have I've got a little boy. Um, how, how's that been? How's that uh, changed your life?
1: Changed my life. Um, I drink more coffee, uh, <laughs> <less> beer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been brilliant, really. Um, you know, obviously life changing and all. all every, kind of how everyone says. I think. Um, kind of, you know, my wife and I had Benji. It's a very interesting time, really. So we were. Kind of one month into the original lockdown so he's just um just over two now mm-hmm. and so on one hand um you know it was a very stressful traumatic time um i don't think my wife enjoyed uh being in hospital on her own through most of the birthing process no, no. i've been for literally three hours on the day benji was born but which was you know which was quite quite challenging mm-hmm. uh, you know there's loads of stories and people like that mm-hmm. by no mm-hmm. means to me what was brilliant was you know i had um a year effectively of working from home and i uh, was able to support lara and be there and so it's brilliant that i think i've got a, a far better relationship with benji than i would have had if i'd been kind of doing the standard standard work from an office for for that period so but yeah again likewise it, it makes um it does change your perspective as everyone says um Again, Simon, the boss from the previous story, I met for a beer just before, um, you can tell he's still a mentor, Uh, met for a beer just before we had Benji. He talked to me about how um, it's like someone uses a floppy disk and puts it in and you kind of get reset from a values point of view. And, you know, it's really true. And I suppose um, it certainly helps with my empathy of consumers now that I uh, understand some of the pressures, but also the... You know, spectacular rewarding moments people yeah. have having children.
0: Yeah. I know, it's lovely, isn't it? It is lovely. Um, so, you know, do you now work in a sort of hybrid way? What does work look like for you now and your team?
1: Yes, very much so. So, um, kind of in, in line with kind of the most people, are, you know, I, I think I'm in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday generally, or customers or whatever it is, it tends yeah. to be at home monday friday but again it would vary based on business need and where we're at i think we're still finding our way
0: yeah
1: through this uh, and finding kind of the best way of working so on one hand this kind of real flexibility is brilliant and allows people to you know again have moments with their kids take their kids to school do all these things which are fantastic but at the same time i think we're again the moments where we all come together as teams and have those moments together are are brilliant too and I think it's about again as with most things in life finding that balance um, and kind of getting the energy you get from other people those spontaneous ideas the creativity and you know actually it's easier to get things agreed when you're all together it's important but at the same time we definitely want to keep that flexibility and I suppose perspective on um, Mm.
0: life as well. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, you know, we're coming to the end now, but I'm I'm interested. I think particularly when you've got a kind of brand which is more than just the brand; it's the purpose, it's the attitude that you all have, um, it's the kind of mission that you are on. How do you give the people internally that sense of clarity, that sense of, you know, if they have to make a decision, which which do they go for first? What's the hierarchy, or does it all sort of fit together?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, being entirely candid, uh, you know, we can do better at a lot of things. And I think we're on a journey of this, too. For me, though, there's this. We are quite evangelical about what we do, or I certainly am. And I know a lot of my colleagues are. We're we're really and it, it makes it a lot more. Again, it makes it easier to confront some of the tough decisions. But at the same sort of time we're, I think we're very. I think we're very fortunate that ultimately the, the purpose of what we're trying to do commercially is so aligned to the, to kind of the running of the business. So, you know, it, it doesn't feel like a bolt on or a, you know, a nice to do. Ultimately, we fundamentally believe that selling more sustainable fish is good for the planet and ultimately good for the people. And through selling more, which generates more profit and gives us more cash to reinvest, more cash to distribute to our shareholders and all this sort of thing, it's this kind of wonderful virtuous circle. So whilst again, you know, I think I've got a really easy, brilliant job because the real clarity of what I'm trying to do is ultimately is to sell more. And everything kind of ladders from that. So it means that when you have these challenges between the short and the long term or whether or not whether well, the answer is ultimately is you know what is going to support us in our mission to sell sell more fish generate more cash build build a healthier business and ultimately in the long term it's this you know beautiful virtuous circle yeah so i feel very very privileged in what i do and the clarity of our vision and what we're trying to achieve but also how it's really directly aligned to the business requirements. I think, you know, being honest, that you know, I think that's what's great about our shareholder structure too, in terms of it's, it is a social enterprise, but it is for profit. Yeah. Where, you know, we shouldn't be ashamed of trying to sell more stuff and make more money to be able to, but uh, at the same time, it, it just flows really nicely. So it gives real clarity of purpose and, both from a- yeah, it's, okay.
0: a, it's a it's a much better balance now, isn't it? That, you know, you can be a commercially driven business that does something that's, that's greater than, you know, just the sale that you're making. Uh, whereas we sort of used to see it as it's either all you're either doing something to save the planet and it's all very nice and it doesn't really make any money, it's a charity, or you run a proper commercial business. So it's good to see you can get both. If, if I was to offer you tomorrow a job where you had... A brand with loads and loads of money. So you have a massive communications budget, but it's a product that has no real sense of purpose. It's just, I mean, I would have said it's selling crisps, but you've done that before. Um, would that persuade you to move? Not, no, to be honest.
1: Um, it's, again, this is one of those, um, again, really quite, um, quite easy decisions as well, whilst, you know, I, you know, watching watching some you know watching football and seeing loads of sponsorship and everything else like that and remembering the glamour days of being able to have big budgets and I mean you know it is makes me a bit nostalgic sometimes but at the same at the same sort of time I I genuinely and fundamentally believe in the power of what I'm trying to do and so you know I'm really committed to to this journey and to the end goal it's yeah, it's really, again, I find it quite interesting. I, I don't see myself as doing purpose-driven marketing or anything else like that. At the end of the day, I'm doing marketing yeah. and ultimately trying to trying to sell more of, again, you know, what I believe to be an absolutely fantastic, delicious, tasty product. Uh, and, and that's kind of the number one. But actually having all of these, having this greater greater mission behind us is, it makes the you know clarity of thoughts and clarity of decision making much easier. And um, to be honest, my my key objective from a I call it a marketing point of view is to build a bigger business so that I can afford to do some of the more kind of mainstream marketing activities because ultimately I believe that they will work and help me sell more sell more product. And it all kind of goes into that kind of virtuous circle. So you know I'm, I'm I'm very happy what I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm I'm also very lucky that. um, you know, I work with um, you know really bright but personable and you know uh, high high achieving with high ambition people. So it's a great team to be part of. I, I really enjoy the people I work with too, and so we're committed on this journey. There's you know, as we move to this kind of more purpose driven place, there's you know again one of my cheesy cheesy phrases. I don't know if you've seen it. You know, I'm sure it's apocryphal. The story of JFK going to Cape Canaveral and seeing seeing a bloke with a mop and bucket and uh, you know, asking, you know, what, what do you do? And he replied, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And um, ultimately, I don't think everyone in our organisation has that real clarity of vision or purpose yet. Yeah, It's our mission as a leadership team to try and give that clarity of purpose and mission and enlist the people we work with behind this vision. And it's really quite exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? We, you know, we talk a lot about uh, let's reset seven needs of well-being and performance. And two of them are the relationships you have. And the other one is having a sense of purpose. And I think to your point, it's not it doesn't make a difference um, just because you're doing something necessarily that you feel good about. But we do know that if you have a sense of purpose, if you're doing something beyond, you know, what might be your everyday mundane job, it can make a massive difference to your your ability to perform the happiness that you feel and that sense of fulfillment. And clearly it's lovely to hear you rich talk about all the things you're doing with that sense of passion and that sense of purpose, because, you know, you're a great marketer and, you know, you're a really good leader. And I think you could kind of, as you've shown, you can kind of do that anywhere, but you found a place where it makes a massive difference. And that combination of, commercial as well as having something bigger for you know to to save the planet is so important um and I love your enthusiasm and thank you for sharing a little bit with us today
1: well thank you Suki it's great to have the opportunity to talk about it really so uh yeah thanks a lot
0: thank you Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends, and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.